Hello and welcome to the Michael Mama Show. I'm your host, Michael Mamas, and we're coming to you from a rainy Mount Soma, home of the uh, Sri Sameshwara Temple in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And uh, today, this is a like a major concept we're going to cover today. Um, but I think it's important, and you know, I wasn't even going to bring this up, but it comes to mind, you know, the, the whole thing with the abortion issue and Roe versus Wade and all that and everything that's going on. Scotty, you had something you wanted to say about that? Oh, yeah, because um, I'm, I'm wondering what that really says, because we were with a group of people and, you know, everybody started freaking out right away. Hey, we're taking away rights from... Mm -hmm women and all that and then the other people were saying well no if you really paid attention uh it's just giving the the choice to the states you know the people that live in the states are going to vote on what happens and and that'll be that so yeah um, and that's a, know, that's a, that's that a fact of yeah i mean it is a fact that it's good it just turning over the states in the supreme court legally never really had the right to make that decision in the first place at the same time i can understand serious concern about what the state's going to come up with you know what i mean uh sure so we, so it throws a really important issue kind of up right. in the air at least until we find out how the states all you know feel about it you know yeah because that's the next question that i i i had for them is like okay if if they voted in you know when when you know because now there's all sorts of questions about not just it can you get an abortion but now when is the abortion uh when is it okay to do it yeah you know like to in so the of course yeah that's right you know that's right and, and then and somebody so was bringing up the yeah. somebody else was bringing up the fact that regardless of what the states do you can mail order a pill that you know induces abortion at the early stages people would just do that i don't know I don't know. The whole thing is it's a very d difficult subject, you know. Uh, with respect to the, the law itself, I'm a strong advocate of uh, states' rights. I, th I think it makes sense to, for the federal government not to be taking over all these different things that they're not supposed to, uh, education and so on. But, uh, 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 of course, then that brings up civil war and if we stuck too uh, firmly to states' rights. Does that mean that, you know, slavery would be legal in some states? That can't be okay, you know. Anyway, it gets complicated, you know. Yeah, that would create a problem. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be horrible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, what we're going to talk about today is uh, propuntum. Now, uh, in the Vedic tradition, there's one universe, and it's a huge universe, and it contains all the different universes that, you know, physicists are theorizing about multiple universes. But they don't, in Vedic, they don't call them universes, plural, they call them propuncham. And there are multiple propuncham. But the word propuncham is a really important one because it it's true, not just respect with the cosmos, you know, but also with respect, it exists on different levels, like everything in Sanskrit seems to, everything does exist, what we call transgradiently on different levels. 
And uh, uh, so the idea is that with respect to the individual, we each have our own probunchum. We each have our own world. Uh, and that's what we live in. That's how this whole environment we're living in um, is uh, uh, calculated, is understood, is interfaced with. And the, then the idea of parallel, what we call universes, but parallel propuntium is that we all share this one greater propuntium called, you know, what we would call our universe, but we share, we share it, but each of our experiences of it are unique. Your propuntium is unique, my propuntium is unique, everybody's living in a unique propuntium, but they so closely parallel that they, we interface through them. Uh, uh, and I think if we, you know, you, we can work with that just as our own personal in a very practical way in our lives uh, for a long time because it's, it's difficult really to get that, you know, what we mean by a word or how we see things is just organically physiologically, based on the physiology, if you will, of our propuntium, you know, it's different than the, than the person sitting next to you, you know? And uh, uh, so there's, you see, there becomes a real art, a real finesse into uh, how to, you know, manage, if, you, if that word is okay, our relationship with all the different propuntium. Because also different groups, they kind of have a world of their propunctions, if you will, that interface in a particular way. In other words, it's a group dynamic, a, a way that that particular group thinks. And it's a little different than the way this particular group thinks. And so you can look at propunctum in, in that sense, in the sense of group consciousnesses. Uh, uh, and then the, the world, it's another global consciousness, global propunctum, you know? And, and uh, uh, the art... I'll tell you, I was around a great teacher in India and his ability to stay clear with that just spontaneously. He didn't have to think about it. Just you feel it. I mean, there are different parts of the world. You could say Americans versus, I don't know, uh, Europeans or whatever. There's a little different nature in the propensions there and, and, and how to manage them, how to even assist the evolution of one particular group of people uh, based on the nature of their propensum, you know, um, and how it's different than how you man manage the evolution of another group. And it also goes for individuals. Uh, uh, it's not a whitewashing. It's not uh, all the same for everybody. You know, we're all unique. Uh, so we do well then to try to gain some understanding of the nature of our propuntium as an individual and also the propuntium of other people. But that's a very subtle thing and there are just different ways of uh, approaching it. Uh, uh, and any of those ways, they're like models and if you cling on to the model too ardently, then it becomes a labeling and a compromising of the person's psychology, psychodynamic structure uh, but nevertheless, if, if, if it's managed well, it, it helps us. And there's one uh, model in particular, it's talked about in the Veda, you know, it talks about the five divine currents. Uh, 
uh, and you see when, so what is it that forms our individual propuntium? We do well to, to explore that. And the way that works in a, I could say a physiological sense is when the soul enters the body and that's of course happening in the birthing process. And so the soul comes in through the crown and then it starts to occupy, incarnate, you see, starts to occupy the physiology until, and so we're not fully incarnated, you could say, until the soul is rooted in the root chakra, in the first chakra, the area of the sacrum. That's why they call it the sacred bone, because the whole process of spiritual growth and growth as an individual, evolution of an individual, has to do with um, interfacing uh, the spiritual nature, the divine nature, the wisdom component of our being with the, the physiology on all levels. And it comes in that way. It comes in through, you know, through the heart, uh, through the gut, and finally root, roots in, in the pelvis, you know. And so that physiological process, is, psychologists tell us, in fact, that it's like the first five years of, of an individual's life go a long way into determining the nature, the structure of a, of a person's propuncham, of a person's persona, their psychology, what makes them tick. And so all these different qualities that come in, they deal with different divine currents, aspects of our divinity, but there's karma can get created around each of those different five divine currents. And that is largely a function of when the incarnation process, particularly in those first five years, uh, gets interrupted, if, you, if we could say, or gets interfered with. And so the first one is right when the soul first starts entering the body. And that usually happens like in the, uh, actually before birth, during pregnancy, uh, the, the soul starts to enter through the crown. Uh, and then also that con continues by during the birthing process itself. So if it was a difficult birth or if there was something not right in utero, those can create karma, you know, traumas in the psyche that get carried with the person through the rest of their life. Michael, and, uh, yeah, is it is the soul, is it, can it be predisposed to lean in certain directions for certain, I don't know, I didn't want to say distortions, yeah. certain, you know what I mean? Right, know, and, and, and it's a good question because you see, um, when the soul gets interrupted in the birthing process, if you will, in the incarnation process, that is, is largely a function of whatever karma that that soul brought in with it. And so it's a little bit like, you know, did the birthing process cause the, the trauma or was it karma that determined that the birthing process would go that way? And, you know, you could say both are true. So, yeah, it's karma that you brought in with you, and that determines the whole thing. Uh, uh, so it's a good good point, Scotty, you know. But at any rate, then, uh, that type of trauma in the early incarnation process in utero or during the birthing process, that creates a thing where the soul 
doesn't want to enter the body. It's like, man, it's dangerous there. It's just, things aren't good. I'm staying out here. And so what happens then is people, uh, and you, you'll see people like that, where they just seem that they're out in the clouds, you know, expressions like that. And it's kind of like they're floating. They're not really in their body. And, but because of that, the body's not fully energized. And so it becomes like thin and emaciated and their left, right imbalances, you know, and, and, and they, they don't really have much of an intimate connection, you could say, with physicality at all. In fact, they sort of feel like they're spiritual beings and they're above it all, you know. Uh, and you'll see them, you know, thin body. You can kind of identify uh, somebody who has that sort of karma going on. But then after that, after they incarnate, there can be the next um, thing. So we're coming from the crown and we go into the throat and the heart. And so, the, and, and there becomes then a connection with mother, with receiving, giving nourishment, that whole kind of a thing, that exchange, uh, a breastfeeding stage, all that. And, and that creates a kind of a, a wanting, you know, um, and that creates a dynamic where they're, they're not feeling fed. Nothing feeds them. Nobody can feed them. Nobody can love them just right. And if I have to ask for love, it's not really love. And if I don't ask for love, I won't get it. And so, you know, there's double binds to all these things. And then you, it goes in further. And the next thing is into like that, in, into the third chakra area. And it deals with um, uh, uh, interaction with mother, father, and then how that maps out into the rest of the world. And so, if, it, it, and there's a confusion there because there's a love, of course, there. But also, if if there's karma around it, it can feel invasive and so the body can get big in older life just to build up and protect and, you know, big fat body, Oliver Hardy type thing, John Candy type thing, very loving, but nevertheless, this issue with invasion, which can elicit rage. And then it goes on like that and goes into uh, uh, the next step in the birthing process, incarnation process has to do with uh, maybe around age, uh, what, four or so. And uh, that's when all of a sudden, this dynamic of child with parents is like something's not right. And here I believed in them and relied on them. And then I'm starting to see that they've got their problems and the world isn't the way they prevented, presented it. And so it becomes a betrayal kind of a feeling. And so that, that creates people who are committed to their own cause and their own beliefs. And so there's that whole dynamic. And then going even further all the way into the root chakra where, where if it gets interrupted there, the final stage around age five, What's going on there? Well, then the, uh, you know, it's interesting because that which goes on below the waist and that which we associate with, you know, up in the head and above, they're very different, you know, and you get into issues with, you know, uh, going to the bathroom uh, or uh, sexual encounters, sexual relationship. Uh, those more earthy, if you will, type of functions versus the lofty spiritual, you know, uh, world of um, divinity and spirituality and everything's lovely. And so if, if, that, if things get interrupted in that stage uh, and that awareness around that usually occurs, you know, around age five, then you've got somebody who's, you know, heart and spirituality isn't really very well connected to their uh, sexuality and, the messiness of the earth plane, you know? 
So that's that's and so what all these things do then is they form a dynamic, uh, very profound, strong influence depending on the nature of the karma, a very strong influence into the nature of an individual's propuncium, their world, and their world has to do with how they view everything around them, how they interact with everything around them, uh, and so that's. I like to say then that it's not so much, um, I mean, certainly what happens is important, but what's probably even more important in most cases is your relationship with what happened in your childhood, in your life. That's why, you know, five kids can all have the same parents and they all have very different characterological natures because their relationship based on these early years of life and how it got developed in them as individuals determines their relationship with the environment, relationship with what happened. And so relationship with becomes a, a, a very huge part of it. And here we're sharing the same earth plane, but we're all living in our own propuncium and they're very, very different. And it's very difficult to ascertain um, then how another person thinks. And that's where we get into this notion of projective identification. Well, if that happened to me, this is how I feel. Therefore, that's how you feel. And that's, of course, bogus. But it's extremely common. It's even hard to um, hard to get around, you know? Um, it's funny, Michael. We have a um, thing when we're working with Marriott and the salespeople. You know, they talked about the golden drill. Do unto others as they... you'd you know, as you would do onto them or whatever, you know, you would have them do unto you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we always talked about the platinum rule, which was do on to others as they would have done onto themselves, you know? So, you, you know, it, 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 it made the salespeople more effective because they actually, you know, we're telling them to, to try to see the world through their eyes to understand to, yeah, to pre pre present what we were doing, you know. Yeah, to really understand another person is not so easy to do, you know. No. <laughs> and, to, and to try to get them to think the way you think is largely futile, you know. Yeah. You know, so so then the art of working with other propunctions, be they of an individual or of a group or what have you, it's a very subtle and sublime finesse, you know. Right. And that, that teacher I was around in India, I mean, he was so masterful at that. It was like he could really get the sense of a, the nature of a propuncium, be it of an individual or a group of people, and relate to that group, if you will, uh, in a way that was unique to how he'd relate to that group. And it was all about not what they necessarily even always wanted, but what they needed <laughs> to, to evolve, you know. Uh, um, it's a very, very interesting thing. Um, and then there's the whole idea of, um, you know, where's our freedom with respect to it? Is it all just karmic? Well, you know, in, in, uh, in the, uh, I teach largely Westerners, and when I teach Westerners, I tell them you have a lot less free will than you think you have. A lot of it is karmic. I have a friend who, in, from Delhi who teaches in India, and he tells his students that, uh, you have a lot more free will than you think you do, you know? So again, it's our nature of our relationship with the notion of freedom. And just because we feel free doesn't mean we are free. 
It could be our karmic predetermination that makes us think we're free when we're really not, you know. And so this whole idea of how do we become free, because uh, uh, that's what spiritual liberation is all about. You might still have your history and the, the five divine current karmas going on, but you have enough of the inner divinity within you, not just from la-la land, you know, but from the depth of your being uh, uh, rooted in the depth of your physiology and the depth of your soul, then you see. Uh, uh, and as that gets enlivened and stronger and stronger, then you are in the world, but not of it, you see. Uh, and that's the evolutionary process, you know. So there's this whole dynamic between free will and predetermination, really, because karmic is pretty much predetermined, you see. Uh, and so how do we cultivate our free will? All too often, the way people try to cultivate their free will is to impose another conditioning or another sort of karmic dynamic on it. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a human uh, uh, doing, I'm a human being. Well, that's just a thought, you know, and it's, a, yeah, it's got, there's truth to it, but really it's the, I get it syndrome because how do you really rest in your own being as opposed to clinging to another notion? And so that's why meditation is the most powerful form of, um, uh, uh, becoming free. And why do we want real free will? Because that's when our will aligns with the transcendental depth of our being, that source of infinite wisdom, intelligence uh, uh, that dwells at the depth of birth of the whole universe. And what is that? Well, people would call that God. So your will aligns with God's will. But, you know, that can kind of sound like, well, does that mean now I'm just obeying God's will like I'm some subordinate being? Uh, uh, and that's, I mean, I hear that, but that's not really exactly what it means. It means you are functioning from that place of your own inner divinity, which is in harmony with God's divinity, you know? And so that gets to the thing where even if you have fully enlightened people, they're going to disagree based on their own nature of their own unique interface with God, with divinity. So God's will is a lot bigger than just one little rule that applies to everybody or one perspective that applies to everything. Uh, uh, it's bigger. It's much bigger than that. So we meditate. We, we fully enliven, more and more enliven our own divinity. That gives the tail of the kite of our being. It gives the kite of our being a bigger tail. So we stop spinning around our karma and we become grounded and we soar higher into our with our own true nature, meditation, and then also what we're doing here at Mount Selma, building a unified field generator, something that enlivens that transcendental depth within the whole environment, permeates the whole environment. And that's um, today's podcast, unless I left anything out, Scotty. No, I think we covered it. All right, that'll do it. Everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll be back on again next week. Take care.